Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the Old Testament prophets with Dr. Eric Tully, Director of Ph.D. Theological Studies and Professor of Old Testament and Semitic Languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of a brand new book just about to come out called Reading the Prophets as Christian Scripture, A Literary, Canonical, and Theological Introduction. Dr. Tully, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks uh, for having me. It's great to be with you today. We're talking about prophets today, but before we get to the prophets, let's define prophecy. Uh, There's various types of prophecy. Could you give us uh, a quick overview of that? Yeah, in the book, I I define prophecy as uh, someone who does two things. Uh, First of all, they receive a word from the Lord, and then they deliver that word in a particular context, in a particular situation to an audience. And that delivery might come in the form of um, oral speech. Uh, it might be accompanied by some kind of sign act or uh, other rhetorical event, or it could be in the form of writing. And uh, I think one of the one of the really interesting um early examples of this is uh, is the prophet Samuel when he's a young uh, boy living in the tabernacle you know this is a very well well-known story where he's asleep and he hears someone calling his name and uh, and first Eli says to him go and say here I am you know speak to me and uh, and so he does that he says here I am Lord speak and the Lord delivers a message to him about the house of Eli. And, um, but as a part of that, as a part of that entire event, um, uh, he learns that not only has he received a particular word of the Lord, but he has to speak it in an absolutely faithful way, no matter what the cost is to him or to anybody else. So in the morning, when he has a conversation with Eli, Eli says to him, Tell me the word of the Lord that you received last night. Don't hold anything back. Tell me everything. And so, of course, it's extremely bad news for Eli and his and his household. But but Samuel tells him everything. And so that that's a I think that's a pretty good illustration of what we mean by prophet, Uh, at least in the uh, at least in the standard Old Testament sense. Like you're right that there's there's some other. Uh, things we can talk about in terms of a prophetic gift in the New Testament and things like that. But but basically a prophet um, uh, at God's initiative was given a word for a particular time, particular context, and the prophet delivered that in various various ways uh, to an audience. And what more could you say about the role of the prophet in terms of how he or occasionally she functioned with the people and particularly with in regard to kings and priests? Yeah, uh, you know, the, the thing about uh, being a prophet is that because uh, they served as spokespeople for the Lord, um, prophets were never able to choose themselves. They could never uh, decide, this is what I, what I want to be when I when I grow up, right? Or this is my vocational goal to be a prophet. And uh, false prophets can do that. Uh, you can decide that you're going to grow up and enter the, the prophetic vocation, but that doesn't work 
when you're actually receiving a true message from the Lord. That is entirely at the Lord's discretion. And so, um, you know, we see other other examples in the Old Testament uh, where sometimes the Lord speaks in surprising ways. He he speaks through a donkey. Uh, in First Kings thirteen, he speaks through uh, actually a false prophet, someone who's known to be a false prophet, and the Lord and the Lord speaks through him. He speaks through the the prophet Balaam. Um, so. Uh, the Lord is the one who calls the prophet and and uh, decides that that that's the individual that's going uh, to receive his word. And so, um, you know, Amos was some kind of a farmer. We don't know if he was a, an extremely wealthy rancher or if he was a, a poor shepherd. We're not totally clear on that. Um, uh, Jeremiah came from a priestly family. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom. Um uh, we've got prophets uh, in the pre-exilic period in the 8th century, 7th century, and we've got prophets during the exile. Ezekiel's living in Babylon among the exiles, and then we've got prophets in the post-exilic period. And so in, in a variety of different different ways, I, it's very difficult in some ways to say this is the profile of a prophet because God uh, chooses many different people, and, and he's the one that decides that he's going to deliver the message. And, and Amos is an interesting case because he, he is running into conflict with the unorthodox religious practices at Bethel. And the, the high priest at Bethel says to him, you know, stop talking, stop prophesying. You're stepping on my turf here. You're stepping on the King's uh, turf. Uh, we don't want to hear what you have to say. And Amos's response is instructive. He says, look, I'm just a farmer, right? I didn't want this job. I didn't, I didn't pursue being a prophet, but the Lord called me. And therefore, you should know that the, the message that I'm giving to you is from the Lord, not from me. So there's some importance to that, that it, it speaks to prophetic authority, that these aren't necessarily highly trained, specialized individuals who have developed some sort of a technique there are people that God has called at a particular time to, to speak his word. So, Well, in contrast to the prophets that we know of as Old Testament prophets that are authoritative, yeah. um, how can you describe the situation of prophets of the court or a prophetic guild that didn't necessarily listen to God? Yeah, well, there's probably two different categories that we can talk about there. One would be, um, I, I guess, what I would consider to be false prophets. Normally, they're talked about in that way. Um, you know, so, for example, we have this, um, uh, we have passages where, uh, uh, for example, at the, at the contest at Mount Carmel, where you have Elijah on one side and then 400 prophets of Baal Nasher on the other side. Uh, or there's a uh, there's a story in Chronicles um, where you have one you know all these all these uh, prophets who are uh, telling um, King Jehoshaphat and the king of Israel to go to war that God will God will give you success and then there's one true prophet who stands against them and says that that's not true so. 
We, we also have many examples of, of false prophets among the nations, prophets who um, serve other deities. And the Old Testament uh, talks about these individuals as doing similar things, having uh, similar messages, but devoid of any true authority. And they tend to be characterized as kind of yes men who tell the king or the, the priesthood what they want to hear. And um, uh, there's obviously a great deal of pressure involved uh, not to rock the boat, not to disrupt the culture, not to anger the deity. Um, well, they could cases, lose their lives at times, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there, the stakes were high. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to be a false prophet and only one reason to be a true one. <laughs> Uh, being a true prophet uh, in the Old Testament is usually n- not a very nice job, and it, it often involves some sort of persecution. I mean, Jeremiah has a lot to say about uh, how he wishes he had never uh, been called to this job. And so, but but there's many reasons to be a true pro- uh, a false prophet, and 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 uh, uh, but. Um, false prophecy is also often connected with divination. So we have ancient Near Eastern extra biblical texts in which uh, the the prophetic text will actually say, here's a prophetic word, but it still needs to be verified by a diviner. So it's kind of a second check on the prophecy by speaking to the spirit world and getting some sort of information. So, so we definitely have, you know, we can talk about false prophets. Um, Sometimes the conflicts between true and false prophets are, um, you know, very explicit. You you have false prophets who also perform their own, own kinds of sign acts. There's a lot about false prophets in the book of Jeremiah, uh, where prophets are putting pressure on Jeremiah. You know, hey, uh, God isn't going to send uh, judgment on Jerusalem. He would never allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. If you say that that's not true, you're being treasonous and so forth. So it was a it was a challenge. The other group that we can talk about that are not false prophets are uh, some, what the Hebrew text sometimes calls the sons of the prophets. Uh, the, uh, in Hebrew, it's the um, those individuals who accompany the prophet, and uh, it might be some sort of discipling type. Um, mentorship. We're not exactly clear on that. Um, in Kings with uh, in, with Elijah and Elisha, we have examples of um, groups of you know fifty prophets who appear to live together. Um, they do prophesy. So in Hebrew, we have the the Hebrew verb uh, nava, which is to which is to prophesy. That's not entirely clear to me what that means because it's not accompanied with a um, with a specific message or some sort of activity that's going on there it's, it's not it's not clear what that what that is but so for example the the passage in Kings where uh, with the floating axe head you know I don't know if you remember that story um, but there there's a pro- obviously a prophetic community they're building some sort of a, a common dwelling for themselves. Uh, there's evidence that some of these prophets were married. Um, yeah, so it's 
th- those are a, a bit anomalous. It's hard to know kind of what to do uh, with those with those groups, but they may have assisted the prophet or or uh, in various ways or learned from the prophet. But there are not many cases where they actually delivered a, a specific prophetic word. And in your book, reading the prophets as Christian scripture. Uh, what is significant about your approach, and how does that contrast with other approaches? Yeah, you know, actually, um, the title, I, I, one thing that I talked about in the introduction to the book is I don't want the title to give the impression that um, that this part of the Old Testament is not by default Christian scripture or that it's not inherently Christian scripture, but that we need to read it some special way in order to make it Christian scripture, right. To read it as Christian scripture. I I don't think that's what's intended. uh, And we don't want to give that impression. What we mean by that is recognizing that, that although this particular prophetic corpus comes from an ancient time, a particular historical contexts and and uh in a setting in ancient israel that it is it is a part uh, a critical part of our entire bible our entire christian bible and therefore what the prophets have to say is um is absolutely crucial for the church today crucial for the christian and that the prophets speak not only to what came before them with the mosaic law and the history of israel But they speak to what comes after them, too, with God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ and his purposes for the world and uh, the eschatological future. And so in this book, um, one of of the distinctives of this series, which is um, uh, which is very promising. This is the second volume in this series. um, What we're what we're doing is exploring how these particular books relate to the entire um, Christian theology and the new Testament and so forth. What I do in the book is I start with the prophet in their original context. And I, and I want to make sure that they have space to say what they're going to say in terms of their own distinctive message. Like what, what is this prophet communicating to us about God? What is the theological message here? And I want to I want to make sure that I allow them to make their own distinctive contribution. But then, I I consider how that fits into the story of the entire biblical canon and and how some of those themes uh, set up what happens in the New Testament, how some of those theological ideas are developed in the New Testament, and certainly how uh, what the prophets are looking forward to in terms of. Uh, God's plan of salvation, his Davidic king that will rule in Jerusalem over a a unified people that now includes believers from among the Gentiles, how all of that is fulfilled and brought about through the the person and work of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's what we mean by by reading as Christian scripture. It's also, it, it is a bit of a response to um, other kinds of readings, which treat which which may treat the text purely as a historical artifact, um, uh, purely as uh, maybe uh, an artifact of religion in which ancients 
did their best to say something about God and they may or may not have been correct. And so when we talk about reading the prophets as Christian scripture, there's also a statement there about authority and reading in such a way that we place ourselves under the text and learn from it, submit ourselves uh, to it rather than uh, just analyzing and, and uh, dissecting it until it's something that's dead. (laughs) So So part of the title is canonical. How do the four major prophets and 12 minor prophets fit into the canonical scheme? What's significant there? Yeah, well, it's a bit, it's a bit like I said, if you think about um, sort of one big narrative in the Bible, um, the Bible begins with, with a very grand Um, a very grand scope of God's relationship to all of creation. He's created all, all the world. He's created the animals. He's created uh, people to be in relationship with him. It's a good world. And then when that goes bad through human sin um, and it, and it becomes very broken, then he chooses for himself Uh, in the book of Genesis, in the family of Abraham, a particular people for himself, not not so that he can save them and destroy everyone else, but so that he can use that people as a means of salvation for everyone else, right? At least least in the way that it's offered. And so uh, the prophets talk about um, uh, Israel is the particular people of God. They talk about the the obligations that God God set forward in that that original covenant relationship that He made with Israel. Um, the expectations that God had that if these were His special chosen people, that they would reflect His character in, in the way that they treat each other, and in the uh, the faithfulness and fidelity uh, with which they worship Him. Um, but one of the, one of the roles that the, that many of the prophets play is the role of covenant prosecutor, where they show that Israel has broken that covenant and, um, failed to be faithful to the Lord and therefore are deserving of judgment. But the prophets also talk about the fact that there will be a remnant that God will save some of Israel for himself forgive their sins, redeem them, restore them to himself, so that even as uh, the nation as a whole is first divided and then goes into uh, exile in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, um, and even as the nation as a whole experiences judgment, there's a subset of that nation that God will be uh, delivering for himself. And then the prophets go on to say that, that, that in relation to that subset of Israel, it's like a subset of a subset, that added to that remnant will be believers from all the nations. And that, and that, uh, that God will bring in believers from, from every nation, even other nations that are under judgment. God will bring in believers from other nations into that remnant, and he will, he will then create a new people for himself that's made of Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and non-Israelites, who will be the true people of God. Um, and that, and um, 
And that will, in the eschatological future, sometime down the road, the prophets don't know when it's going to be. They don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Sometime in the eschatological future, uh, God's Davidic king will will both uh, provide a way for that new true people of God to be um, uh, restored to him in relationship. And then he will rule over, uh, over a new heavens and a new earth and perfect peace. So, so from a canonical perspective, as, as we look at the grand scope of, I guess, the history of the world and of God's great salvation program, the prophets stand at this crucial fulcrum really kind of between Old and New Testament, um, looking back on the Old Covenant and some and, and its essential failure, uh, at least from the perspective of the people, and then looking forward to the New Covenant and God's uh, plans in the, in the future for that not to be the last word. And uh, they have just crucial things to say about the nature of the people of God, about redemption, about the good news of God's judgment on the nations, that justice will be done, and that at the end, in the day of the Lord, God will come to set all things right. So it's, um, you know, all of those canonical themes of, of salvation and judgment and relationship and obedience, uh, all of those things are located in the prophets. And it's uh, it's just an absolutely uh, critical set of books for the church and, and uh, for us to learn what we need to know about the God that we serve. You've touched on this some already, but there's a very specific historical context, and most of it revolves around the conquest of Judah and Israel, and then exile, then return from exile. So could you say more about the historical situation and how that is crucial to understanding the prophets? Well, you are right that that the prophets uh, in the Old Testament, at least the, the classical writing prophets, do tend to cluster around three main time periods in Israel's history. There's the early pre-exilic prophets, Hosea and Amos, uh, probably the book of Jonah that are clustered around the uh, the end of the northern kingdom when Assyria came in and, and conquered Samaria and exiled the people. And then there's a cluster, and, and that, that would also include Isaiah and Micah, uh, who were prophesying uh, in the South at that time. And then there's a cluster of prophets, uh, Obadiah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Habakkuk, uh, who are prophesying around the, the exile, the end of the end of Jerusalem, um, at least at that time, and, and, and the, the Babylonian conquest and the exile to Babylon. And then there's a few prophets uh, in the post-exilic period, during the time of restoration, you've got Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, and I think probably the book of Joel. We don't we don't exactly know when Joel was written, but probably around that time as well. So those were those were key moments um, in Israel's history. They were um, they were huge uh, steps in what God was accomplishing with His people. Um. And so after that, after that time, uh, in the, in the post-exilic period, uh, there was, there was a time of silence where God um, did not speak in this way. Um, 
through his prophets to the people uh, until we get to John the Baptist in the New, T- New, T- New Testament. So we can talk about earlier prophets as well. I don't, I don't want to say that, that these prophets are all the ones that there are. I mean, Moses was the greatest prophet. He was the only prophet who spoke to God face to face. So we can actually talk about the climax of prophecy not occurring at the end, but occurring at the very beginning. And all the other mm. prophets of the Old Testament are in some ways imitations of Moses because he was the he was the greatest prophet who mediated for the people and received God's law and, and promulgated it. Uh, we can certainly talk about prophets in the courts, which you've already mentioned, like Nathan and Samuel, who uh, communicated God's word to kings. Of course, there's Elijah and Elisha, who um, who dealt with uh, the idolatry of Israel and um, argued for, for Israel to remain faithful uh, in challenging times. So, there's actually a huge list of prophets from from many different time periods, but the ones that I'm primarily interested in this book are the the classical writing prophets from Isaiah to Malachi. Which brings me to my next question. Um, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, the process of moving from generative personalities to canonical scrolls in the Hebrew Bible. He talks about the oral to written mm-hmm. process. So... Um, were they, were some of them writers or did other people just write them down or how did that all work? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I think, I think there were a variety of different, um, processes in different books. Um, some, some information we just don't know. Um, we do have prophets who I consider to be prophets in the old Testament who did not have an actual prophetic ministry, but wrote prophetic books. And that would be what in the Jewish tradition are, is, is called the former prophets. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Uh, those are the former prophets. And those are those are prophetic books. They're taking the raw material of, of history writing, and they're using that to make theological points. So then we also have prophets who had a public ministry, but didn't, ever write a book um, like Elijah and Elisha or the prophet Nathan. So, so this is a unique genre, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. This is a unique genre because these prophets uh, had public ministries in which they served in particular historical contexts. And then, and then we have books from them as well. I personally take the superscriptions of the book seriously. Um, uh, the superscriptions of a of, of not all the books have them, but they they associate a particular book with a prophet in a particular time frame, and I I tend to take that uh, very seriously. We know that in the case of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah did not write uh, his book. He he had conversations with kings. He had conversations with false prophets. He spoke to the people in, in public settings, like in the temple. And then he had Baruch, his scribe, who was with him and uh, uh, wrote the book and, um, and, and apparently arranged it and wrote it down. And so the prophet Jeremiah himself did not apparently have uh, a direct role in writing, but but that doesn't mean that the book was legendary or, or crept up generations later. It was written by his assistant, 
uh, right then at that time. And in fact, when uh, when the king of Judah uh, destroyed Jeremiah's scroll by cutting it up and throwing it into the fire, then then he and Baruch had to had to go back and, and redo it. Essentially, mm-hmm. go back to the beginning of his prophetic ministry and redo it. So, other prophets um, uh, like Ezekiel, there's not much. I, I don't think there's a great deal of uh, debate, at least among evangelicals, about uh, the fact that that Ezekiel had a um, had a, a very direct role in writing his book. He has a lot of, uh, of time stamps in different oracles where Ezekiel is constantly uh, locating his oracles in a very specific uh, time frame, a very specific setting. Uh, there's a lot of sort of narrative about his own experiences and where he writes in the first person and things like that. So it seems seems evident that um, that Ezekiel had that direct involvement. There, there's a bit more controversy about Isaiah, but I, I think that both because of the uh, specific claims of the book and because of the message and structure of the book, I, I think that uh, I think the book claims that the whole thing came from Isaiah of Jerusalem. Um, that, that's a, that's a big discussion. And, uh, and there's, more controversy about that, but I, th- I think that, uh, I think that Isaiah essentially wrote his book and, um, and that it all comes from that early time period. So, yeah, so there's a variety of different circumstances and essentially what, what I understand is that, um, the prophets had these public ministries and then, um, at some point these oracles were written down, they were collected as authoritative, um, the, the, the narratives of the prophetic experiences also had to be written down. Those were collected and combined, edited into books. And then those books were, um, recognized as canonical scripture laid up in the temple along with the other authoritative books. And, um, uh, so it's a somewhat of a complex process of writing and canonization because of the variety of different kinds of materials that you have in the book. It's not just like the book of Ruth where it's a simple narrative or it's not like a Psalm, but there's a, there's complexity to the different kinds mm-hmm. of genres and the narrative and the oracular material um, and so forth that all needs to be combined together into, into a book that is not a transcript of the prophetic ministry, but is a, is a new uh, a new prophetic document for a new people, for the future people of God uh, to be able to continue to learn from what God had to say to his people. All right, now for the fun part. Let's take uh, take a tour through all 16 prophets, um, just giving a brief overview, key points about the theology or whatever you think is crucial. Yeah, okay, well... <laughs> Okay, well, um, uh, Isaiah is a very lengthy book, 66 chapters, and it covers um, in, a, in an incredible way the whole scope of God's salvation program. Uh, it deals with um, uh, basically the problem. It's, some people have called it the gospel of Isaiah because it basically deals with the problem that Israel is not functioning as God's servant. They're not, they're not functioning as God's people and they need, they need a redeemer. They need some, some way to fix that problem. 
And uh, so the, the first part of the book is introductory. And then there's a, a massive section from chapter seven all the way to chapter 39, which basically deals with um, the idea that God is the only one that has the power uh, and the ability to save. So that seems like a lot of material to, to prove that point, but it's an important foundation for uh, the, the, the radical message that Isaiah is going to make in the next section, which is that God's plan for his Davidic Messiah, his servant, is not just to save the people of Israel. He's overqualified for that. He is going to save or at least offer salvation to the people of the entire world. Mm. And that's a radical claim because if we know our Old Testament, we know that the people of Israel got it wrong an awful lot. So um, then, then at the end of the book, there's a discussion of uh, God is the divine warrior who um, fights for his people, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God, and the eschatological future of the new heavens and the new earth, as well as eschatological judgment when God uh, painfully destroys uh, all those who have not attached themselves to him. So it's a, it's a sweeping book over, over the whole plan of salvation. Jeremiah is a book that deals uh, a lot with false prophecy. Um, a lot of, a, a lot of discussion of, um, of Jeremiah's particular prophetic ministry and the challenges that he faces as he urges faithfulness to God. There's a lot of discussion in there about the impossibility of ever getting it right uh, in terms of, uh, of faithfulness to the Lord. And then of course he announces the new covenant in, in what's uh, sometimes called the book of comfort in chapter 31, where he announces that, yeah, people, people can't get it right, but God is going to do something radical in order to uh, make a new covenant with them. And finally, once and for all fix this, fix this relationship. So um that's uh, obviously very significant piece. The other prophetic books deal with uh, the new covenant, but only Jeremiah calls it that. He's the only one that actually calls it a new covenant. Um, Ezekiel is uh, is somewhat unique because he's prophesying in exile with with the people of Judah who have been exiled, and his main concern, as I understand it, is is really knowing who God is. So he. He has a lot of strange visions and, and strange experiences and really challenging sign acts where he almost performs these little dramas acting things out. And he, he, he lives among a very hard-hearted people who are dealing with the difficulty of, of, um, of loss. They thought that God would never destroy Jerusalem. They thought that God would never allow his temple to be destroyed. And now he has. And so it raises all kinds of questions about uh, whether there's any hope for them or not, what it means to be faithful to the Lord in exile, what God's plans for his people are in the future. And, and the book of Ezekiel ends with this grand temple vision, uh, which is a, um, a picture of God dwelling with his people in relationship, you know, for all time. So uh, it's, a, it's a very long and complex book. And then the book of Daniel is a bit shorter. 
um, in the in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Daniel is in the writings uh, at the end of the canon, but in our Christian Bibles, it's it's one of the regular prophets, and and so I deal with it uh, just as a regular prophet in uh, in our um, in our Old Testament. Um, first part of Daniel is about about life in exile, about faithfulness when. Uh, you're in a in hostile territory, essentially, and uh, getting pressure from kings to uh, apostatize and deny your faith and worship idols and so forth. And then the second part of the book are these visions about um, about God's plans for the future and how He is going to uh, set all things right in uh, in, the, in the eschatological future. And then quickly, the 12 prophets, uh, Hosea, I think, is is uh, primarily about um, a competition between Yahweh and the idols and who is going to do a better job of giving Israel what they want. Israel is like an adulterous wife, like Hosea's wife, Gomer, who um, has for the time being chosen to worship idols, thinking that they can do a better job of uh, giving her wealth and security and so forth. But, but Hosea argues that that's not going to work out. The only way they're going to get what they want is by being faithful to God in his covenant. And Hosea makes some, some startling claims about the fact that God has a future for Israel of, of blessing and forgiveness. uh, Even though to this point, they haven't shown a great deal of interest in that. The book of Joel is um, uh, uses the, the the devastation of a locust plague to describe the day of the Lord when God breaks into human history and sets all things right. There are some important connections to the New Testament and the book of Acts with Pentecost there. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about the book of Amos. That, um, that is really concerned um, with Israel's covenant unfaithfulness and breaking their relationship with the Lord. And, um, and, 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 and Amos zeroes in on the horizontal aspects of the covenant. He's interested in social, social uh, obligations that the people have to treat each other with justice and righteousness and the fact that they haven't done that. But at the very end of the book of Amos, in chapter 9, he announces that God is going to raise up the house of David, and he is going to redeem his people, and that's going to conclude people from the nations as well. Um, in the book of uh, Obadiah, uh, Obadiah uses Edom and Edom's uh, involvement um, with the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem as a picture of the day of the Lord when God uh, saves his people and destroys his enemies. Uh, the book of Jonah is about um, the, the, the problem of God's grace. The fact that when God shows grace to people, he shows grace to people who don't deserve it. And as we watch Jonah struggle through that, uh, we're also able to, to wrestle with those uh, ideas and understand what it really means for God to forgive. Um, 
The book of Micah occurs in a series of cycles alternating between uh, an indictment of the people's uh, covenant unfaithfulness and then looking forward to the future when God saves a remnant for himself, rules over that remnant in a Davidic king who will be born in Bethlehem, and that there is no other God like, um, like the God of Israel who can save in this way. The book of Nahum uses the destruction of Nineveh as a picture of the day of the Lord. Uh, in order to uh, to have a meditation on God's great power and um, that it's actually good news that God will will destroy his enemies and those who have hurt his people. Uh, the book of Habakkuk uh, is wrestling with God's judgment uh, by bringing the Babylonians, or he calls them the Chaldeans, to Jerusalem and uh, wrestling with what it means for God God to judge. And we don't on the one hand, we want that, but on the other hand, we don't. And so we're in need of, of God's grace for that. Zephaniah is interested in the day of the Lord. Um, uh, basically, I understand the book of Zephaniah to be focused on the fact that if you are with the Lord, then the day of the Lord is a day of great blessing and joy. And if you're against the Lord, it is a day of great suffering and pain. And so how you experience the day of the Lord has everything to do with whether you're properly related to the Lord or not in the way that he's uh, provided. And then uh, we have the three uh, post-exilic books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai and Zechariah are, um, uh, they begin with uh, uh, a prophetic ministry that attempts to, to restart the building of the second temple and uh, to be faithful to the Lord back in the land again. Zechariah has a lot of uh, visions, apocalyptic visions about God's plans for the future and, uh, the, and, and how he'll save the people that he's called for himself. And then Malachi looks to the future. He talks about the ethics of the people of God and how the people of God are supposed to live. And then, uh, and then Malachi looks to the, to the future and anticipates uh, an Elijah who's coming, who we know to be John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for the Messiah. And that's how the book, at least in the Christian Bible, that's how uh, the prophetic corpus ends with this, um, this anticipation, not only a, of a Davidic Messiah coming, but of this uh, uh, Elijah forerunner who will prepare uh, the people to hear what this, uh, what this Messiah has to say and do. So it's a, the, the, the prophets are so, um, so varied in their approach. They're, they're so rhetorically powerful. Uh, some of them are quite short, but all of them are necessary. Uh, not because they, they say everything that there is to say about theology, but, but because they each make a particular contribution that is not repeated in that same way elsewhere in the Old Testament or in the, in the Bible as a whole, for that matter. So where do we find um, contrast or even contradiction within the, um, the theologies or the messages of the different prophets? Well, I'm not sure that I would talk about, um, about contradictions uh, between the theology of the prophets, but it's really more of, of, a, of, a, of a difference in focus. Um, and what particular part of God's nature the prophets are interested in at that moment. Um, one of the things that I talk about with my students here at Trinity is that we, we can really 
we can really talk about five different kind of horizons of the prophetic message. That first, the prophets look to the past and they describe how Israel has broken the covenant, Israel or Judah. Second, they look forward to um, to judgment in the near future. Uh, then they look to restoration in the near future. And then what they have to say about, about judgment in the near future then becomes a pattern for talking about eschatological judgment. Hmm. And what they have to say about restoration in the near future becomes a pattern for talking about eschatological restoration. So if a prophet uh, is talking about the physical return from exile, um, often that imagery and those ideas will then be uh, a pattern that develops for talking about about God's uh, restoration at the end of the world. So I in, in, and previously I mentioned that uh, the prophets love to use concrete realities in their own situation to talk about metaphysical or eschatological realities. Um, it's because it's it's rhetorically effective. It helps it helps their people understand uh, what they're talking about. So. So I would say that if we think about those five horizons, um, not all the not all the prophets deal with all five of those, and not all the prophets deal uh, with the same historical context, obviously, and um, not all the prophets are even dealing with the same audience, and so those that variety, the variety of historical context, the variety of geographical context, uh, the, the variety of, of the particular circumstances that they're dealing with means that, that they all have a different angle on um, uh, as, they, as they talk about God. And so Hosea, there's a reason why we think about uh, Hosea and Gomer and, and Hosea going to get his, his adulterous wife back uh, when we think about that book. And that's because that has been, that has been set up as an introduction to the book in order to, to kind of color everything we read in that book. And God is presented in the book of Hosea in, in kind of a startling way as a, as a, as a, as a bit conflicted on the one, on the one hand, he's, he just can't put up with unfaithfulness. But on the other hand, he cannot bear to let judgment be the last word because he loves his people so deeply. And so God, God, as he thinks about his relationship with his people in Israel, mirrors Hosea, the husband, going out and getting his wife and bringing her back again. And so it's really, it's really startling for God to reveal himself that way through the, through the prophet. It's not really that way in Isaiah. In Isaiah... Uh, God is presented as holy. Uh, he's the one who sits above the circle of the earth. He is far above any idol or any power. And he is sovereignly working out his will and calling people to himself that had not been called before. And God, uh, as we learn in chapter six, will even um, will even obscure the vision of his people so that they're not able to respond to the prophetic word. So 
So you have that. And then in the book of Ezekiel, you have these somewhat scary visions of, of this divine vehicle coming and the angels are there and they have, uh, or the, the, these, these divine creatures and they have the different, different faces, a face of an ox and the face of a lion and the face of an eagle and the face of a person. And they're holding up this platform and God is up on the throne and he's, his glory is not in the temple where it's supposed to be. It's in, in exile. And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit concerning as we read Ezekiel, like who, who is this God? And, and in the book of Ezekiel, God talks about judging people and destroying them for their sin. And then he says, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. And it's like, whoa, that's how you want us to know you when you kill us. Right. So, so it's not that I, I don't, I don't believe um, again, this is, this is because I believe the prophets are Christian scripture and that they're authoritative and, and that they're the very word of God. But I don't believe that the, that the theology of the prophetic books is contradictory, but, but they definitely do reveal different aspects of God's character and they show him in, in, in a variety of different settings, sometimes as he deals with uh, his oppressed people who need to be rescued Sometimes as he deals with his rebellious people who need to be punished. Sometimes as he deals with powerful, you know, uh, superpowers like Persia or Babylon that need to be, or that need to be reined in or, or judged or, or Egypt. And uh, so, so each, each prophetic book, uh, gives us a different kind of picture of God, and we need all of them. It's a composite picture uh, that that uh, that reveals who God is, and and um, all of them need to be taken seriously. We shouldn't we we shouldn't be uh, kind of picking and choosing like a buffet which which picture of God we like the best. Uh, that that is a kind of idolatry. What we need is is the the whole counsel of God's word to tell us who this who this God is. We already touched on some themes, particularly justice. So if you could uh, take us on a, a deeper dive on the, the justice issues that we see brought up in the prophets. Yeah, well, that the reason justice comes up in the prophets is not because the prophets have a particular political axe to grind or because they, you know, they, they themselves have, you know, been mistreated and so they're just grumpy. That 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 fully comes out of what God had already revealed in the Mosaic Law. He he says, "Look, uh, I've chosen you for myself. You're my special people, and not only do I want you to be faithful um, in your relationship to me, but I want you to treat each other with with dignity. I want you to treat each other with justice and fairness. And and justice in the Old Testament or in the Bible means that you." get what you deserve without any special uh, without any special pleading. So that means that if you do what is right, you should receive the reward for that, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done in the past, uh, no matter what people group you come from, uh, no matter whether you're rich and can buy lots of friends or whether you're poor and friendless, it doesn't matter. You, if you've done right, you need to be treated in accordance with that. But on the same token, if you have done wrong, then you need to be punished for that, no matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're rich and you can pay a bribe. It doesn't matter if 
you're well connected. Um, and so the Bible says some, you know, really interesting things that sound kind of funny to us sometimes where, where he says, uh, do not, do not uh, favor a poor man in his lawsuit just because he's poor. In other words, don't feel compassion on him because he's poor and therefore um, disrupt justice. Like if he did what's wrong, then punish him. But by the same token, if you, if you have someone who is um, uh, otherwise extremely vulnerable and, 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 uh, and in a precarious situation and, and you know that you can get away with injustice and you know you can exploit and abuse them, you better not because God cares deeply for the poor. He, he cares for the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, and he will, he will be a terror to you if you, uh, if you mess with those people. So that's, that's, the, that's what is set up in the Pentateuch, in the Mosaic Law. And so the prophets are, uh, are basically showing that Israel is full of bloodshed, it's full of exploitation. Uh, the poor are mistreated, the weak are mistreated, and uh, and that is every bit as much a violation of God's character as idolatry or um, unfaithfulness of other kinds. God God cares very deeply about that, and and He will not put up with it. So, um, yeah. So the prophets have a lot to teach us about those issues, and uh, some of it. Uh, fits very well with our, you know, our, the current questions that we're asking in society. And then some of it um, actually critiques some of that a bit and, <laughs> and uh, helps us to, um, uh, to have a unique perspective as believers. So we just want to have a thoroughly biblical view, both in caring deeply about justice um, uh, but also making sure that our, our view of uh, justice is thoroughly biblical. And the Messiah. The prophets have significant things to say about the Messiah and therefore eschatology and the future hope. Mm -hmm. uh, what is significant for you in all that? Well, again, the prophets don't, uh, don't say everything that there is to say. I mean, we need a New Testament. Um, a lot of times what they're doing is setting forth categories or concepts um, in really stark ways that lay some important theological foundations for us. Um, the prophets as a whole, and, and this is oversimplifying, but as a whole, they look forward to a Davidic king who will come from the line of David, uh, who will uh, initially uh, be mistreated and cut off as an atonement for sin, but then, but then who will be uh, restored by God and uh, will rule over God's people with his headquarters in Zion. Zion is a, is a reference to the temple mount. It's, it's a way of talking about the presence of the Lord. It's a, it's a metonymy for the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and so um, the prophets have a variety of different, different ways of talking about this individual. They call him a branch. They call him a shepherd. They call him a servant. They call him a king. Um, and, uh, you know, Isaiah has some obviously very, 
important things to, t- to say about that. Um, Zechariah has a lot to say about, um, about this messianic individual, but, but this is God's means of salvation. This is, this is the, not only the way that God will save his people, but this is the enduring ruler uh, who will rule, who will, who will rule over his people in a glorious new heavens and earth without conflict, who will put down the enemies of God once and for all and allow his people to live in, in, uh, in peace and security. So, um, the prophets don't all have the same thing to say about that. And, and we, we shouldn't, I, I don't think we should be, um, trying to find what isn't there. I, I often say to my students that, that the, that the restricted messages that the prophets on, of, of the prophets on some of these matters is not a bug. It's a feature. It's, it's not that we, it's not the, that we wish the prophets said more. It's that whatever they did say, uh, is said in that way, forward-looking, anticipatory, and 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 very prototypical uh, as as a way of driving particularly foundational truths home without getting into the to the deep weeds. So um, that that that's that's one thing that I that I try to do in this book is help people understand you know, what, what is the distinctive contribution that the prophets are making um, that we can learn from uh, without, without trying to rehabilitate them theologically in some way. Right. But, uh, but really recognizing that, that, that they serve a, they serve a particular function, theological function for us um, that has often been neglected in the church and needs to be recovered. You write a whole chapter on the persuasive strategies of the prophets. What is that all about? Well, I mean, as we've already touched on, the prophets were often deeply unpopular. Um, uh, Hosea talks about being called a fool. Uh, There's a tradition that Isaiah was eventually sawed in half. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit put in stocks. Other prophets were, were killed for what they said. So it's a, it's a tough audience. Uh, sometimes we read of Kings uh, being very frustrated with, with God's prophets for telling them what they didn't want to hear or criticizing them uh, for disobeying God's law. So it's a, it's a tough job. It's a tough audience. Um, it's a message that no one wants to hear. And so what the prophets needed were these these persuasive strategies to communicate the message uh, in a way that would be as effective as possible. And uh, so in the in the book, I I list um, a number of those. Uh, Some sometimes it might be uh, speaking in a particular location, um, using poetry um, acting things out using verbal repetition, using a question and answer format, uh, describing vision reports in in a, in a, in a way that, that, uh, doesn't just boil them down to the, to the eventual message, but, but really progressively presents, um, what the prophet saw we see that kind of thing in Ezekiel chapter 37 with the Valley of Dry Bones. So 
So all of these are attempts that that we can recognize from our own rhetorical circumstances. You know, uh, when we're when we're trying to speak in an effective way, or uh, when we when we re, uh, read really good writing that is arresting. Uh, just trying to recognize what are the prophets doing that may at first look a little odd, but then we realize uh, what they're what they're trying to do and. Um, that helps demystify the prophets a little bit. I think sometimes it's easy for Christian readers to pick up the prophets and be like, well, what is this with, uh, what is this with Ezekiel cooking his food over human excrement? Or what is this with Isaiah walking around naked or, um, or, or, uh, or Hosea marrying a a promiscuous woman? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are odd. Um, But but once you recognize um, the, the mechanism there that's in place, it kind of helps demystify that a little bit and, um, and, then, and then makes us more attuned to, uh, to when the message may be hard to hear, but is absolutely necessary. In all your research for doing this book or previously, what do you find most interesting, most compelling for you personally? You know, one of the things that, that has really affected me, and I've, I've, I've mentioned this uh, a, a few times here, uh, one of the things that has really affected me is the way that the prophets talk about the good news of God's ultimate judgment. That, that, I know that sounds um, a little bit counterintuitive, but, but for the oppressed people of God, especially as we think about Christians around the world who are mistreated by governments, driven underground, expelled by their families, uh, how they lose their jobs or um, bands of, uh, of uh, ruffians, you know, disrupt church services and tear down church buildings. You know, I, I guess the question that 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 uh, it raises is: Does God care about this? Does God care about His people, and what is He prepared to do about it? And the prophets have an answer for that. And their answer is: Things may be hard now. Uh, the world is a mess, and it's full of it's full of sinful people who abuse and hurt each other. But in the end, that is not going to be the end uh, of of the story. And um, God is going to set all things right. And that includes destroying his enemies once and for all. And that, that is presented in the prophets as very good news. Uh, For example, at the end of the book of Nahum, Nahum says uh, of the death of the king of Assyria, who will not clap their hands when they hear of your death? Mm. And then the book ends. And that's the conclusion that this is great news that God is going to take you down. So um, I know that I know that sounds a little, uh, 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 you know, sometimes people feel attention with that, with the gospel or with Jesus's um, instructions to turn the other cheek. But I think those things need to be held in tension because on the one on the, on the one hand, we're called as Christians to show to show grace to our enemies, to love our enemies uh, to treat people with kindness, uh, even those who hurt us the way that Jesus did. But there's another side to that, and that is that the prophets give us hope that God does know and he does care when his people are abused, and he will, he will deal with that. 
And in the end, um, the enemies of God will be put down. And it's only then that God's people will be rescued and will be free and uh, can live in peace and prosperity. So that that's one thing that struck me. And uh, it's something that I praise God for. Um, that's a that's a different kind of hope, but it's a real hope that the people of God have as they as they face a difficult world. All right, I think that's a good place to conclude. To conclude, I'm trying to say. All right, my name is Dennis Messler. You've been listening to the Charge. We've been uh, taking a look at the Old Testament prophets with Dr. Eric Tully author of a book called Reading the Prophets as Christian Scripture, a Literary, Canonical, and Theological Introduction. Check out the link below. It'll be out in just a couple days. So, uh, Dr. Tully, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you, and I appreciate the time with you. All right. Peace to everyone.